Hello, and welcome to MoneyPod, the podcast designed to help you better understand all things personal finance. Learn how to build a budget, manage money, reach your goals, and save for retirement. The podcast is hosted by Jackson Wood and David Gorham. Jackson and David are financial advisors at Liftoff Financial Planning, a registered investment advisor based in Idaho. All opinions expressed by Jackson and David or any podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Liftoff Financial Planning. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Liftoff Financial Planning may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right. Welcome back to episode five of The Money Pod, the podcast about everything financial. You've got Davey here along with Jackson. Uh, as always, you know we appreciate the number of subscribers and listeners that we're getting. Uh, if you guys want to leave us feedback on any medium in which you're listening to this, that would really help us out. But uh, other than that, got, oh, go ahead, I was going to say, we got, we got more feedback from episode four than we have the prior episodes all combined. So keep it up. Keep sending us questions. We love them. We're trying to get to all of them. Um, and... Uh, I think I think it's working. So hopefully, hopefully you guys like it, and we're going to continue creating as much content as we can. Yeah, we read the hate mail too. It helps us, you know, <laughs> uh, feel good about ourselves. So be sure to give us any opinion or feedback you've got. All right, Davey. So my article for this week is a little bit of economic data, and I'm an economics nerd, so I love this. Uh, on Friday, July 5th, so the day after everybody partied and nobody cared, we had the jobs report released. Uh, for the month of June. And this was how many new jobs the economy added in the month of June. And the reason that we pay attention to this is because we can gauge with a relative degree of accuracy. You know, there's always variables and exceptions to the rule, but we can gauge whether or not our economy is contracting or, you know, expanding. And it, interestingly enough, everybody predicted that we would create 165,000 new jobs. Um, but what the number actually was, was 224,000. So it's still exceeded expectations. It's still showing that the economy is growing. There's a lot of critique, you know, that we can give this, you know, are they good jobs? Are they bad jobs? But we beat expectations by, by quite a bit. What do you think? So it's always tough with these economic indicators because no matter what happens, people will try and take a single metric, you know, in this case, the number of jobs created. And they'll try and assign a whole bunch of value to it. Like, you know, look at the last time we had this many jobs was under this president, et cetera. And I mean, with my background, I really don't like to try and dial things down to a single metric to evaluate. You know, in general, the opening of more jobs, I suspect, leads to economic growth. You've got more positions and businesses that are looking to hire, pointing to expansion. True, but yeah. I mean, it's almost like voodoo at a certain point. You've got these people who will take, you know, a couple of chicken bones and say, oh, the number of jobs is over 200,000. And then they'll predict, you know, recession or uh, expansion based on, you know, whatever they feel is in the stars. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a, like, the one thing to keep in mind about economics is there's a million different variables going on inside of one economy. So these metrics are just designed to kind of give us some sort of rough outline. Um, a couple more stats here. So the unemployment rate edged a little bit higher, 3.7%. So 3.7% of the population is unemployed. Uh, but you know, you think, okay, it went higher, but in context, that's still near 50 year lows. So more Americans have had jobs now than over the last 50 years. Uh, wage growth was 3.1% year over year. So, you know, people are getting paid more, their wages are keeping up with inflation, but there's one other side of the coin, uh, which is the long-term unemployed. So 
there's a 1.4 million people in the United States that have been out of work for 27 weeks or more, which that seems like a lot of people that not have jobs. It's a, it's a little bit interesting. Um, yeah. And so I don't know if you know, for that number, is that people who are not disabled, but are out of work, i.e. actively seeking? Like, do you have any more resolution on what that 27 week uh, pers- personnel are, who those people are? Yeah, I think that that's not on unemployment, not on long-term disability. Uh, okay. They, they may be that, and that dis doesn't count people that are on like short-term unemployment. Like, you know, if you have surgery and your, your work is going to cover, you know, give you 25% of your wage or something. So, um, you know, interestingly enough, you know, it, it points to a, a rather healthy economy. Now this can always change. Um, but, you know, comparing it to 2018, 2018 was crazy. Uh, we added tons of jobs every single month. The, mar- the market was growing, even though the stock market was down. The economic job market was growing. Everything was, you know, increasing and the stock market went down. So one of the, I'll hit on this real quick, but one of the analogies that I like to use, I don't remember where I heard this, but when you look at the, econ- the economy and then you look at the markets, they won't really reflect each other. Um, and the best way to think about this is, uh, imagine you're looking, you know, like from a helicopter, an aerial view over a park and you see a pathway going through the park and you're watching a man walk his dog across the park and you chart the path of the man. And then you chart the path of the dog. They're definitely going to look different. The chart of the man is going to be very smooth up and down. You'll be able to predict where he's going be because you look at the sidewalk and then you see his dog on his leash. The dog is going to be running up and down, going crazy. When the man's going you know, down, the, the dog could be going up. And if we're looking at the aerial view, that makes sense, but left or right. And uh, the, the story there, or the lesson is that the economy is more reflective of the man. It makes slower changes over time. It takes longer to it takes longer to go into a downturn. It takes longer to recover. And then the market can just be going nuts. So we see that all the time. When the market goes down, it's not necessarily indicative of a weak economy. And when the market goes up, it's not necessarily indicative of a strong economy. So I think it just hints to the to the point of like being able to, you know, understand trends and and understand that these things can take a long time to change and and uh, you know, not one variable is gonna ruin, you know, make or break an economy. Right. And I think for a lot of people, they place they overplace an importance on exactly what an economic fluctuation means for them. I yeah. mean, if you're in your 20s, 30s, even 40s, a major upturn or downturn is probably not going to have that much effect in the long term because we expect the market to trend up over time, obviously with different uh, levels of growth. But I mean, you, right now you can go on to a number of sites and look at this jobs report and a whole bunch of economic uh, forecasts or predictions based on you know that single metric. And in the long term, for most individuals, it's not going to make a huge difference as long as you have a plan and you're sticking to it. Yeah. And also, you know, you'll see countries uh, that are experiencing times of economic expansion and their markets reflect that by, you know, gaining a a huge amount over the course of a year or a decade or whatever, while other economies, you know, kind of suffer. So that hints at the importance of, you know, diversification with your assets, owning, you know, not only some U.S. stocks, but also some, you know, developed country stocks or some emerging market stocks or hedging stocks with some bonds, you know, doing all these different things to diversify your your net worth and your assets. Um, that way you can withstand economic 
fluctuations. We've had for the last decade of re- we hinted at this in the last podcast too. The uh, last decade has been a really good decade for growth and for um, economic stability. It's been a huge recovery. Um, so we'll see if that continues over the next decade. But it's just always important to remember it's like the tide. It goes in, it goes out, but it's going to come back in. So uh, I thought that was interesting. If you want to talk economics, let me know. I can I can dork out on this stuff all day. But it's uh, it's important to know that this is a little blip on the radar. And uh, the important thing is you have you know a plan built. So 100%. Cool. That's a pretty interesting dovetail into the article I have for the week. Uh, this is by Michael Kitsis. For those of you who don't know, he's a very, very famous financial planner. He's involved in a lot of lobbying for the industry. He's kind of like guy the, is, the god of financial planning. Yeah, he's a walking encyclopedia. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if he just reads this stuff in his free time for fun and memorizes it, but I mean, his <laughs> command of the information is incredible. Yeah, he is a genius. His, uh, his article is called Segmenting Retirement Expenses into Core versus Adaptive to Create Retirement Buckets. And for those of you who that just made you like lull off into sleep, what he's essentially talking about is when you're doing financial planning for people, how do we look at what is a core expense that they have to have and what is, you know, an adaptive expense or a voluntary expense that you, you know, can play with, right? Maybe cut. And it, it touches on a really interesting psychological base that a lot of people have with financial planners, which is that they don't want to go and see a planner because a planner is going to tell them, hey, we've got to cut X, Y, and Z out of your budget right now because you don't need those and it's going to slow down your ability to retire, right? Yeah. And you know, instead of looking at it in the traditional budget categories, like uh, you, you have your basic needs. You've got food, water, shelter, rest, and like that is what you have to have to stay alive, right? Safety and security. And then you can go up that Maslow's hierarchy all the way to you know, uh, self-fulfillment needs, Excite. like self-actualization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all the rich people right, right now. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> right. Where do we find meaning in this world, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're not starving, so you get to worry about that, you know? Right. Yeah. So traditionally what people will look at is like, okay, in my budget, you've got, you know, housing, food, healthcare, et cetera. Like that is, those are essential expenses. You have to pay for those. And then when you look at stuff like entertainment or travel or for some people charity or, you know, a miscellaneous expense, they would call that discretionary. And then there's this idea that you just cut it. And what that leads to for a lot of people is this really strong psychological split where they'll say, I'm not going to change my lifestyle that way. I don't want to live on rice and beans for the rest of my life. It's better to just not have a plan at all and we'll see what happens, right? Yeah. And the way that Kitsis attacks this, I think, is really innovative. So instead of taking those categories and saying they're either essential or discretionary, he takes a core of each of those and says, this is what's mandatory for each category. And then there's a discretionary part on top. So for example, housing. You know, if you if you live in a million dollar home, that is your housing cost, and by definition, that would be essential, right? But you don't have to live in a million dollar home, you know, unless you're in San Francisco. So right. you could dial that down and live in something like call it, you know, a two hundred thousand dollar home. So you have a core expense, which is the minimum that you would have to spend to be able to have, you know, maybe call it a two or three bedroom home for your family. And then everything you're spending on top of that to have a nicer place is discretionary. And then, you know, going down foods the same way you can eat a bare minimum of food by only on sale, you know, cut your coupons, et cetera. That would be your core cost. And then anything you do on top of that would be discretionary eating out, buying foods that are not strictly necessary to stay alive, et cetera. And so what this does is it creates a a kind of a flex on each category where you can say, look, this is the basic minimum that you have to have for the lifestyle that you need. And then everything above that, if you can cut it, this is what it will get you. And it's, it's a really innovative way to look at both household budgeting and also retirement expenses. 
Yeah, that's cool. So basically what he's doing is he's, he's saying, you know, set like an essential, you know, like bottom line number of what you need for certain categories and then set a limit for, you know, or, or a, an upper level, like, okay, I want this much in an ideal world and hopefully I can hit it. But if, you know, the market crashes or you have an emergency and you wipe out some of your funds, you know, you can, your baseline is covered. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So like, you know, most healthcare is essential, right? Yeah. But if you're including, you know, plastic surgery and healthcare, that would be a discretionary expense. And so you have some core that's needed to keep you healthy, you know, visiting the doctor, medications, et cetera. And then you have a discretionary portion on top of it. Healthcare is probably going to have the least discretionary expense just in general. Great But example. that's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'd be, yeah, I think food is a good one, right? So, you know, we all know how to cook. We all know how to eat, you know, scrambled eggs and rice and beans and chicken breasts and whatever. Uh, but occasionally we love to go out to eat and get a, you know, fancy steak or whatever. And I think you can see the, you know, the fluctuation between those two types of, uh, you know, spending easier than you can, you know, other categories, but I, I love this. I mean, uh, it's all about being flexible, but it's also about having enough to cover your necessities. And that's what you have to focus on first, climb up that, you know, that hierarchy of needs. And then if something happens, market crashes, whatever it is, job support comes out, but it's really terrible. We go into a recession that impacts the markets. You know, you always know you can come back down and your life isn't going to totally suck. So I think- Exactly. That, yeah. And Kits is, man, he's so smart. I wish I was as smart as him. He's a, we're actually part of his, uh, his company, XY Planning Network. Um, and he helped us a lot kind of structure our firm. So shout out Michael Kitsis. Yeah. Smart, no joke. You're a smart man. I called him Sir Kitsis one time and someone thought that was funny. Remember on uh, that Facebook group? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he's the king of financial advisors, man. I think Sir is a bare minimum when addressing oh, him. Oh, yeah. We're gonna... I know that if I ever meet him in person, I won't make eye contact. I'll definitely try and kiss the ring like it's a standard practice. <laughs> I'm going to knight him with the lightsaber we built at Disneyland. He's a Jedi, <laughs> dude. A Jedi Kitsis, I'm calling him from now on. Um, okay. So we're going to jump into a couple of questions and um, – we actually have three questions. We had four or five that were sent to us this year, this week that we need to get to, but we're going to try to get to those in episode six. The first question is, um, let's see here. It's for you, Davey. Besides stocks, do you pursue real estate investments that cash flow and pay you monthly? That is a great question. And that's from Daniel Del Carlo. And so, uh, yeah, for sure. I personally do this. I think it's something that everyone should have as a part of a diversified portfolio as your portfolio grows. Um, there are two types of properties, essentially, when you boil it down, you have actively managed and passively managed, right? And that for passively, you can either own it yourself and then have another property manager in town or locally run it. Or you can have, you know, a read or something where you're buying into real estate, even though it's in the form of a security and it's still represented in your portfolio. Yeah. So just you personally, oh, go ahead. just real quick, you said the word REIT. What that means is real estate investment trust. So you're putting money into a, you're buying shares of a REIT. It trades on the market, just like a stock or an ETF. And then the fund or, or the trust company, the real estate company takes it and diversifies it into whatever properties they want to buy. So you own it indirectly. You don't have to worry about any of the management. You don't even know that, you know, all the details of the funds that you own or whatever. So that's a REIT. Um, that's truly, truly right. passive, right? It, it, essentially, yes. It's as close as you can get to being 100% passive. Yeah. I mean, you obviously have to put the money in initially, but yes, that is definitely a passive investment. Um, I own multiple properties. You know, Some of them have businesses operating out of them. Some of them are rentals for you know residential. For, for anyone looking to get into the game of real estate, there is a lot of math involved and there is also a lot of risk. Um, 
you know, currently in the place that I'm located, there is a very, very hot real estate market. And so I see people snapping up all these properties at somewhere between two and two and a half times what I would pay for them. Some of the best advice that I ever got was you make your money on a rental when you buy it. And so no matter what you intend to do with that property, if you overpay to get into it, and that's usually from a very excited and or very inexperienced investor, you know, it's going to take you a long time to make that money back. Yeah. Um, particularly with fluctuations in the market, everyone expects real estate to appreciate, but that's not a guarantee in any given time window. So you really have to shop around, make sure you know what you're looking for and that you're capable of both, you know, repairing and maintaining the property and, you know, know what you're getting into. I have, I've known some people personally who have rushed into real estate and it has damaged their lives severely. Yeah. But personally, I think it's a great idea if you're prepared. Yeah. I think there's no rush. I mean, you look at people that are, you know, in their forties and they've got, you know, 500 buildings or whatever. Any of the guys on the bigger pockets podcast feel like, wow, you've done a, an amazing job, but take your time. Of course, with anything, make sure you're educated. You understand the ins and outs of it. I don't own any rental properties, but uh, it's something that I would be open to. And, uh, you know, I own some REITs and some real estate investment trusts and funds like that. But, um, yeah, I think it's a it's a good way to diversify. Just you have to be careful. Anytime you take all of the management into your own hands, you just better back it up with a lot of education and research and and be really sure that you're making the right the right call. Exactly. I mean, I I enjoy reading about, you know, tax law and financial planning and everything else, which is why we do this. And even with that amount of knowledge, my first rental was a huge learning experience for me. So, for anyone I would just recommend that you do your research and make sure that you're making the right call for your family. If you buy one, send us pictures uh, of it. I'd love to know. It's fun to, it's fun <laughs> to learn about that stuff. Um, Absolutely. Cool. The uh, next one comes from Clayton Roy. Clayton. And it is Clayton Roy says, I listened to the podcast this week. Here's my question. How do you pick a financial advisor and how much do they charge? Take it away. Yeah, good question. So um, when you look at a financial financial advisor, financial planner, uh, there's a, there's a few different things that you would want to consider. The first one is, do you like them and do you trust them? Uh, you don't want to work with somebody that you don't like, and, and you may not be best friends with your advisor or your planner, but you, you need to at least respect them and trust them and, and enjoy talking with them and feel like you're getting value from them. Uh, in terms of how much they charge, there's a couple of different models that financial advisors will work, work with. Uh, the first one is commission-based selling. And so what will happen is the advisor or the insurance salesman or whatever will recommend that you buy some sort of investment product or invest in some sort of fund or something like that. And they will be getting a commission or a kickback from, uh, you know, from your purchase. So if you put $100,000 into some type of investments, the advisor can make up to 10%, 8% of that. They make $8,000. There's a lot of you know, debate in the industry of whether or not that's a good thing, because you might find advisors that are recommending you do something so that they can make the most money possible. And it may not, may not be in your best interest. Uh, so that's the commission model. Sometimes they'll get, you know, uh, you know, like 5% upfront for selling you something and there's penalties associated with that. Not all advisors that work on the commission model are, are, you know, bad people or bad, you know, advisors, but you just need to be very careful. The next one is called the assets under management fee model. And this is where you pay the advisor anywhere from like 0.5% to 1.5% of your account balance. And they manage your account every single year. So if you've got $100,000 in the account, and they're managing it for you, they're making, let's say, 
$1,000 a year to do your financial planning, to help you, you know, pick your investments and to do all that. If your account goes down in, val in value, then their fee goes down because it's a percentage. So what their earning goes down. So this one kind of aligns incentives, I think, a little bit better where they want to help you grow your, grow your assets, you know, increase your net worth, do some things um, that will increase, you know, how much money you have saved because then they can make more money. Uh, so that's an interesting one. You have to be, you know, you have to be trusting of somebody that, that is a financial planner that's going to control your money. And you have to have a lot of money uh, in order to do that. Because if you have $10,000 and the, the advisor is an AUM-based, fee-based advisor, uh, then they will, they probably won't give you very much time because if they manage your money for a year, they're going to make a hundred bucks. So uh, just, just kind of understand that those ones, those are the firms you'll see that have like million dollar minimums or whatnot. Uh, then there's a, a new way, which is one of my favorite ways, which is a retainer model. So you'll pay the advisory firm X amount of money per month, and they will give you uh, a financial plan. You'll have them on retainer. Um, you'll be able to go to them, have monthly check-ins, that kind of thing. That's how we structure our model. So we have, we have a retainer model and we have an assets under management model. We do not do any commissions at our firm. We don't, we don't believe in that. Uh, so I, I think that that's the best way to go. That's what I like. Dave, you going to say something? Yeah. So, uh, we're, we're a fee only firm because the distinction there is people will say that they're, you know, fee based. And that means that sometimes you can get that commission, you know, fee only means that we charge for service, not for anything that we sell. Yeah. Fee only is the type of firm that we have. And, uh, I, you know, that's what I, that's what I like. Something that's also popular that's coming around is hourly financial planning. Uh, so, you know, you just like you would an accountant, you pay them for however much time they give you hourly or an attorney. Um, you'll come in, you'll hire them to do some projects to analyze something. They'll, they'll, you know, calculate the amount of hours. Um, usually they run anywhere from like 200 to 450, 500 bucks an hour. Um, so, that's kind of the the four models. The hourly is growing. The retainer model is growing. Commission model is slowly dying, um, and uh, the AUM is still the biggest the biggest uh, model that advisors use. So yeah, hopefully that sure. makes sense. I, I I think you just gotta like your advisor. You gotta trust them, and you gotta make sure they're not giving you biased information. A thing to remember is you want to make sure that the client is always doing, or that the advisor is always doing. Uh, what's in your best interest and, and what they would do if they were you. So when you're interviewing advisors, ask them, and you're going to make a recommendation that I buy this product, how much are you getting, right? And the answer shouldn't be, well, you're putting in, you know, 15,000 bucks and I'm, I'm making eight grand or what, you know, something crazy like that. You got to, you know, you just got to ask questions. You got to be, you know, if they're hesitant to answer the questions you're asking them, that might be a sign to run the other direction. Right. And I, I think another thing on top of this, that's also intangible is your advisor should be someone who educates you. Uh, you know, clients are completely different. You have some who are like, Hey, here's my money, you know, do something with it. Let me know what you do. And then there are some who, you know, want to ask a billion questions and you, your advisor should be willing to walk with you and make sure that you understand what's happening with your money. Uh, it should not be a black box where you put checks in and then something happens afterwards because that's a recipe for disaster. Your, your advisor yeah. should be able to take the time and explain to you clearly why we're making the decision we're making and why that's good for you. And exactly like you said, if they run from questions, especially about fees or how they're getting paid, I would go the other way immediately. It should be transparent in terms of how they're getting paid, and they should never be ashamed of what they're charging. I agree with you, man. You should watch the Why Liftoff video. That's kind of our mantra. That's um, good. Those guys are pretty attractive. I mean, yeah. not in good lighting, but you know, <laughs> with enough filtering and uh, you know presets from 
from Photoshop. They're, they look. I'm like pretty that. sure they put Vaseline on the lens, and that's I mean that's a money maker right there. Yeah, that's right, man. All right, so <laughs> I think that answers that one. Feel free to reach out to me if you uh, you know you want to uh, ask any more questions. I'm happy to go through that. But basically, you need to have an ally. You need to have somebody you trust and somebody that gets paid for what they're doing for you, not the product that they're selling. So that's the way I would I would frame it. Uh, the next question, Davies, for you. This is from Brittany Seaton uh, on Instagram. No, this is on Twitter. Uh, does putting money in an IRA lower your tax burden? Go. Who boy. Um, okay. The most technically correct answer is it can. So we're going to do this in two strokes. So there's two kinds of common IRAs, right? You have traditional, which is pre-tax, and Roth, which is post-tax. If you put into a traditional IRA, which stands for Individual Retirement Account, what that money, what happens to that money is it's deducted from your income tax for the current year. So up to $6,000 per individual can be uh, put into one of these accounts in a given tax year. If you put in $6,000 to a traditional IRA, you will not pay income tax on that $6,000. But then when you withdraw that money that you put in and any gains on that money, it will be taxed as income. So if you are in a very low income tax bracket now, and then, you know, when you retire, you're taking out a lot more money, you may end up having a higher tax burden because you contributed pre-tax. Yeah. On the other side of that coin, you have the Roth IRAs and that's what's called post-tax, right? So the money that is put into a Roth contribution is taxed going in. So you'll pay the income tax on it in a given year, but then you do not pay tax on withdrawing your principal because it's already been taxed. And then the, the real sweet thing about this game is that you don't pay tax on any of the gains. So you put in that $6,000 a year, year after year after year after year. And then when you're 59 and a half, you can withdraw all of that money, your contribution and the growth tax-free. And for a the lion's share of taxpayers, the Roth IRA is going to be your best bet because we're in a lower bracket now than we likely will be in the future, both because income tax rates are low currently and because we're going to be taking out more, uh, more income likely in retirement. Yeah, I think that the Roth IRA is... Um... Oh, it's so powerful. It's really cool to see those things grow. And all of a sudden you don't have taxes when you're, you know, in retirement. Uh, if you need a tax break now, you're a high earner, you have, um, you, you don't have a 401k at work or something like that, then you could look at a traditional IRA. You want to sit down with an accountant or, you know, download some tax software to plug your exact numbers in to see, you know, what the bottom line benefit is going to be using a traditional IRA or a Roth. Um, but now you understand the two wrappers, um, there's a little bit more to these types of accounts than we can cover in a podcast, but tons of research out there on, on Google and, you know, cool articles. I would check out our man Kitsis that we talked about earlier. If you want to, you know, learn everything there is, or you can always shoot us some questions. So I think that's a good primer and some, some good, uh, some good information from Davey. Um, yeah. And as a general rule, just for tax planning, um, it's kind of like a puzzle where every time you put a piece down, all the other pieces change shape. And so you've always got to be aware of kind of what changes when you, you know, deduct tax now, or if you pay the tax on it now, it's never cut and dry. It's always something where you've kind of got to look at the variables and also predict what it will be in the future. Yeah. So yeah, tax planning is definitely something that's more complicated than I just showed it as, but in a nutshell, those are the two main games in town. Yeah. I think with understanding that framework, you can kind of, you know, dive into a little bit deeper and at least have some direction. So the cool thing is when you own a bunch of assets in a you know a qualified account, which is a, a retirement account, and they're growing tax deferred, and you are just you know using your money to make money. That's that's the name of the game at this point. And the wrapper just is dependent upon your specific situation, what's best for you. So that's kind of the idea. Um, that's a good explanation. I like that. 
Cool. So I think we did three questions, two articles. Let's jump into uh, recommendations of the week. What do you got, Davey? So for me, going to nerd out just a little bit. It is mint.com, M-I-N-T.com. It is a free software program. Uh, it's browser-based, put out by Intuit. They're the people who make QuickBooks and do a lot of bank security software. The idea is that it is a, a hub for your finances that's nowhere near as powerful as like what a lot of financial planners will use, but you can link your accounts to it and kind of see what uh, what your accounts are doing and then track your data over time. So you can check what your spending is in different accounts. You can see how your investments have done over time. You can look at like loan payment and whatnot. And so, I mean, I've been using it for eight years now, and I have a really good picture of what my finances are doing at any given moment. And so it's it's a really powerful tool to kind of get a snapshot. And also it's cool to, you know, to see where you were at eight or nine years ago when you first started and how far you've come in that time. Yeah, I, I use Mint. I've, I'm going on uh, three years now of using Mint. We're not affiliated with them, by the way, uh, just so you guys know. But I look forward to the email every Friday. It gives you like a uh, weekly recap of how much you spent, what upcoming bills you have. Um, it's just, it's, you're always know where you are and it does so in like a non-stressful way. It's more just like educational. I don't know. I like it. I, I, I really recommend Mint. There's a lot of other companies out there. Mint, um, you need a budget, uh, personal capital. There's a bunch of them, but I, I prefer Mint so far. Yeah. And I also really like that. I mean, I, I have a number of businesses and rentals and whatnot. And so being able to see them all in one snapshot and be able to kind of look at what has to happen in each of them is really good for me. Yeah. And you can segregate like your business accounts with your personal accounts and, you know, spouses can segregate, but you can have one login. So yeah. Uh, awesome recommendation. I, I think it's also good. one other thing with mint that I completely omitted. Uh, my wife has to actually get my Christmas and birthday presents in cash <laughs> simply because I check it so often that like I would find out like, Oh man, she got me something from here and she would get so mad. <laughs> she didn't know how I was figuring it out. And I finally told her because you know, I didn't want her to go nuts, but, uh, yeah, she actually, what she'll do is she'll actually borrow cash from a friend now because I can see if there's been an ATM withdrawal, you know, the all seeing eye of mint and then she'll pay them back later. Oh. But, uh, it's led to some real spy stuff in terms of gift giving. You know, one time I had a client come in to meet with us and he said he got a bonus, but he was going to take a couple grand of his bonus and put it into a different account because his wife tracks their finances so much that even when he would buy flowers, she would know beforehand because she, che <laughs> she checks their bank registry like every every day, every twi twice a day. That's funny. You're just His wife and I are kindred spirits, man. Yeah, dude. Oh, no. You guys should work for the CIA. <laughs> Who says we don't, Jackson? That's a good point, man. We'll talk afterward. <laughs> and the podcast is over. Okay, not before I get to my recommendation. And this one is uh, not a show or anything like that. I, uh, I'm i a notoriously bad sleeper. Uh, I average like four to five hours of sleep a night. I don't know why, because when I was in college and high school, man, I couldn't wake up in the morning. I was so tired. I'd sleep all day. But anyways, having kids hasn't helped that. Um, so I've been on like a search for what to do to sleep better and this is going to sound dorky, but I bought a pair of blue light blocking glasses. Do you know what those are? Yeah, they, they keep the blue wavelength out, which is supposed to help you actually enter into sleep sooner. Yeah. So like if you're on your computer or watching TV or on your phone, which almost all of us are at night, you know, playing video games, whatever it is, the blue light that's emitted from your devices inhibit the amount of melatonin that your body will create because your body thinks it's still daytime. So if you wear these blue light blocking glasses, uh, you know, some of it still gets into your eyes and decreases melatonin creation or excretion or whatever. Uh, but I've been wearing these things religiously for like the last month and I'm sleeping like seven hours a night. 
And I don't know if it's like a placebo effect, but these glasses I bought were like 15 bucks on Amazon. I don't even know the name of them. They're all, they're all look the same. Um, but I had been sleeping like a rock and it has made me way more productive at work. I feel better. So that's my recommendation. Uh, get some of those. Uh, but do they look dorky? I mean, that's great that you're sleeping and all, but let's be honest, the aesthetics are everything. Dude. I'm not going outside at night wearing these and my wife laughs at me. And when she takes pictures, I make sure I don't have them on. So hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> well, I mean, but you got to look at the worst case. So you've got like a no knock raid in the night. All of a sudden you're swatted. Are you going to be okay answering questions with those glasses on? <laughs> Dude, you know what? They, well, I would take them off if anybody else came around. Even my kids are like, what the heck are those? And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> they might not be worth it, but. Whatever, I'm sleeping good, so I don't care what you think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what anybody thinks. I need my sleep. Um, anyways, I think we've covered a lot this this week. I love the jobs report. I love Kitsis. You know, qu- your questions were great. We've still got a bank of questions for next week, but please submit them. Uh, please review us on iTunes. We have enjoyed doing this. We're going to keep coming out with episode after episode and just keep going until we die, I guess. I don't know. When are we going to stop the podcast? Yeah, Whatever. that's the game plan. I mean, we discussed it. Yeah. Contractually binding until one of us perishes. <laughs> and then I think your ghost might actually be on the hook too. I got to check the paperwork. <laughs> All right. This one got weird. So hopefully you like this. If you have any questions, tweet us at JacksonWoodHQ on Twitter and anchor. Or contact us by seance. <laughs> All right. Or anchor.fm slash money pod. And until next week, we'll talk to you guys later. See ya.